Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with authors, artists, activists, theologians, philosophers, political pundits, scholars, and a host of others about their work and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a free-flowing conversation that's entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, and hopefully enlightening above all. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. 1977. New York City was dark, dangerous, and thrilling. Music was transforming every minute of every day right before our eyes. Gone were the big stadium acts, and in came punk rock, the queen of the rock revolution, embodied by small, angry, individualistic bands who demanded to be heard and recognized. My guest, Laura Davis Channon, was 17 years old at the time. She and her teenage friends jumped right smack into the middle of that revolution, just as the river was raging. They started their own band, The Student Teachers, and played CBGB, Max's Kansas City, and Hurrah. They toured the East Coast, and in between, they studied for high school exams. In her new book, The Girl in the Back, A Female Drummer's Life with Bowie, Blondie, and the 70s Rock Scene, Laura Davis Shannon shares her unique ephemeral life experience in words and rare photographs. Imagine going on tour with Blondie and developing a personal relationship with David Bowie before you finished high school. My guest did just that. She wrote a great book, and we had a great conversation about it. I give you Laura Davis Shannon. Laura, welcome to the podcast. Hi, great to be here. You have just written a book, The Girl in the Back, A Female Drummer's Life with Bowie, Blondie, and the 70s Rock Scene. Is it fair to say that some of your involvement in this sort of punk, very kind of edgy hip, scene in the 70s came from like parental neglect i mean you kind of (laughs) you talk uh you talk about the book you spent some time in germany after your parents divorced and which sounded really strange your your stepfather took a lot of hitler movies reading mein Kampf. not not as a believer in so but just to tell you how this is how bad things happen and yeah and eventually you wind up uh, you wind up in new york with your father right um yeah well i mean we went to berlin uh, I had been living with my dad um, for a number of years, um, and um, we went to Berlin because he was um, going to be in Document to Six um, as a performance artist, and he was also uh, asked to teach over there. And um, I, so we lived there for uh, you know nearly a year, and um, so yeah, that was a, a wild experience. Um, but what had happened was that just prior to going to moving to Berlin, I had started to connect with the uh, scene, with the underground punk scene. And so, uh, as I mentioned in the book, I the tapes from some uh, gigs that I'd gone to, sort of, I listened to them constantly to keep me sort of connected back with my, you know, guys in in New York. Um, and with rock and roll, and obviously Bowie, and um, uh, was one of the uh, tapes I listened to. But anyway, the point was, yeah. So I came, we came back, and we we're in New York, and um, that was a as I tried to evoke in the book. That was a very um, New York was at that time very just completely broken. Um, you know, it was just uh, there was garbage all over the streets, and you know, yeah, it wasn't. It, it wasn't this post Bloomberg kind of uh, no, th- th- that we no. think of now as this place where it, you know, it's incredibly high end sort of. I mean, this is a different New York. It is completely different New York. It was before the Koch 
heroin busts. I mean, they were selling heroin at, at the deli on the corner. I mean, it was insane. And um, it was very, um, and it, there was a, a lot of rebuilding had not gotten anywhere near started. Anyway, um, and they were very old. But anyway, it was very dark, just dark and, and dreary. And there was a lot of crime. And um, anyway, yes, parental neglect <laughs> might have played into this. Um, I, I, I think a lot of us to, uh, had that experience. I see. I don't know if it was a generational thing, but a lot of my friends had the same sort of experience where their parents were just not there, and um, we were we just went off and did our own thing. So um, going to the clubs and you know staying out late um, just seemed to be accepted. I don't know, uh, you know, everybody, everybody did it. And, you know, we were all able to do it. And we we're all able to hang out there and get, um, you know, connected with um, the people, the, the people who were making music at CBGB's like Blondie in their early stages and Talking Heads in their early stages. And um, yeah, CBGB's, uh, I mean, this is, this is at the heart of the whole music scene globally. I mean, yes. th that you're in the heart of. Yes. At that time it was amazing. And um, I mean, I don't know how people, and I'm sure that maybe someone will disagree with me, but I'm right now working on another book with um, uh, Michael Alago um, about, um, and he was there at that time too. He became a very big record executive and ended up signing Metallica and bringing Metallica into the world. Um, but this is way back when, but, um, my, I guess my point of bringing that up is that we all were there at that time. And one of the things that was really interesting is that Hilly Crystal, the owner of CBGB, um, he kind of like I'm not saying he wasn't a cranky old guy, but he, he kind of took us kids under his wing. I mean, he's letting kids in there that are under the age of 17. Not that there was in those days, you know, it didn't matter how old you were. You were let into clubs, you were given drinks, you know, blah blah blah. And so, you know, he Hilly Crystal, the owner of CBGB, sort of created this world, um, uh, this environment for people like me and other young people to um, experience that uh, rock and roll at that time and punk rock at that time, and then to get up on stage. It was kind of a, an energy that allowed all of us to get up on stage and play and and make music. And it, and I go into that in the book. I discuss how he, we, we were sort of these huge fans of these bands, of the Mumps and the, te, the, the Blondie and all of these other uh, dead boys. And then we ended up getting up on stage ourselves. Yeah, and, um, and at the same time, you're at a friend's high school, right? Which is, which is, you know, friend's high school. Yeah. Friends, you, yeah. So you're in an academically yeah. rigorous context at the same time. It's like you're living a double life. And you talk about in the book how you did have this intellectual side to you that you you had a reserved kind of side, and and yet these two things somehow collided yeah i was gonna say coexisted or be collision, <laughs> collision may be a better a better term right that, that this but yeah and, and your friend bill knows this guy who was like a, a dear friend who knows the mumps and stuff and, and you start being kind of roadies for them and, and eventually you realize look i've got video equipment we could like do video and, and all of a sudden it, it it being just in the right place right time with right people completely changes your life well, yeah, I mean, it's, that happens with many people in many, <laughs> in many, you know, worlds. But yes, um, that is what happened. It's kind of weird that my father 
was at the you know forefront of the video revolution, and he had brought it into his work as a performance artist at that time. And video was just like such a whole new like what the hell is this, you know? And um, yeah, he had a studio, and we were able to, we, and we thought, wow, wouldn't that be cool if we could make films of of you know make videos? And so we yeah we did that, and that was very exciting and very i mean it, it sort of took us 15 16 year old kids from being these little teeny bopper fans and made us sort of part of the the professional world of these guys of these bands and it was very exciting for people you know that young you know i know i it's different now it's very different now i don't know if that kind of thing could happen now for young people young teenagers well what's interesting is also you were not somebody that was exceptionally musically inclined in the sense of you know you're you're not part of some orchestra or school band or something that you decided you wanted to make music and you're like all right i'll do the drums your friend chooses the bass and you and luckily you had the rhythm to do it i mean not which a lot of people wouldn't have right i mean this is again fortuitous it right? was lucky yeah because that it strikes me as not easy no it's not easy and it what i did i think i did yeah i did describe you know being in, in rehearsal and and learning the, to the ability to use your body uh, different limbs of your body in different ways at different times and it's very complicated or very difficult more so than people realize but yes, if you don't have an internal automatic sense of rhythm, it's not going to work. It's just not going to work. And so that was pure luck on my part that I was able to maintain and have such a good sense of rhythm. Um, and, um, you know, and, and yeah, same thing happened with Lori, who, who played the bass because she was uh, studying with the, my teacher's um, co-bandmate. Uh, co um, and um yeah, and luckily she was able to pick it up very easily as well, the bass. Um, we both pretty much ended up teaching ourselves because we were only in lessons for about a month before we had our first gig, which was at our high school, at my high school. And then it went on to Max's. We went on to Max's about two weeks later. I mean, which is another strange thing that they would even let us do that. You know, here we were like a, such a new young on you know virginal band but it was part of it was that we had been around the scene for a while a year year and a half people knew us we knew you know wayne county who, who was or jane county who was at the door we knew peter crowley who was you know running maxes we knew hilly you know so they knew us so you know here we are okay we got a band together and we think it's going to be real so we were able to get up and get out there yeah what strikes me is it's interesting because you said i don't know if kids could do it now what kids can do now is it would probably be easier to pick up something because of youtube and and the availability of so much that it wouldn't be the hard part that almost might be easier the hard thing is it would be so tough for kids to get up next to these people at your the age you were and to and to i mean just with the way the industry is with the way parenting is today with the way every so like the, the, it seems like there's there was such a permeable membrane all around you that you that you could you know that it was pretty unbounded and and maybe that wasn't always great but it offered you some it probably led to some situations that made you grow up quickly or and, and could be wounding but it also led to some opportunities that you, you couldn't get any other way exactly um and i don't you're right i don't know how that would work now i mean you're right youtube is a major portal for young artists and young musicians again i'm not in that world so i don't know what the how they how that works i uh, but 
Yes. I mean, Bowie would hang out at the clubs. You know, we had the Mud Club here in downtown New York, and he'd be there. Iggy Pop would be there. Um, I ran, you know, I met uh, Marianne Faithful, which I talk about. I mean, these people hung out at the clubs, you know, Jagger, everybody. And so, yeah, if you're at the clubs, you would meet these people. Um, and so, yeah, I don't, I don't know if that's something that's how that's available now, but yeah, um, because of that avail, because we were able to do that, yeah, I had, I was able to connect, and obviously with Blondie, and which became a very big part of my life, uh, as I talk about in the book. Yeah, um, and, and it kind of goes right from the mumps and, and to and your own band, uh, the student teachers, and then you you eventually connect with a guy, right, Jimmy Destry, who is now he was with wait was he in the mumps at the time no he, he was, was in blondie he was the keyboard player for blondie. blondie right okay right but and so you met him kind of through the mumps and through that scene like through the right through the senior right. but he's with blondie right and then you and he introduces you to david bowie i mean you go on tour with blondie i mean he's jimmy destry is is plays keyboard for bowie and at saturday night live performance right like you're backstage yeah i mean this really changed your life i mean with jimmy and you know you talk about just you know as a high school senior next thing you know you're whisked off to london on a blondie tour and and this is and i had to study for these this french test or i had to study for you know this english test that i had to take when i got back yeah yeah it's Uh, just unbelievable i mean your life is like it's like a movie ah that's well that's that's wonderful to hear that's very sweet but um yeah i i mean it was quite remarkable i mean i don't know how when you're that age again another big part of this and 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 in that world is drugs and so how aware i was or other other people were other people even the older people because see debbie was obviously she's probably about I don't know, 16, 17 years older than me. So she had already had a band and she, you know, she was like, you know, Debbie was well known in the, in the industry already um, when Blondie came around. But my point being, and she had also had problems with heroin herself. So I'm, my point is that drugs is a big part of that. And that caused a lot of, you know, uh, you know, conf- uh, distraction and, um, you know, uh, not being completely aware of what was going on. And and maybe not even appreciating uh, that how much was going on, but it, yes, it was it was ve- it was very intense and very amazing and very fast. Um, but it is unfortunate that there was so much drugs. <laughs> um, but um, be that as it may, um, yeah, it, um, being with Blondie and being part of them and knowing them and being close to them um, gave me so much um, amazing. Uh, experience and um, I was able I was given the opportunity to co-write a couple of songs and uh, that was just really exciting too and and be, then of course meeting Bowie now Bowie um, again you know in hindsight when you think about inside and reflect it's just oh, shocking at the time I remember you know I was really how am I going to talk to this man like he's a human being because when even when you see him he doesn't look like a human being he looks like a god you know because he has this great reputation and this you know this he's an icon yeah yeah. um but the thing i I hope i was able to uh, get this across in the book which is that um there was a he wasn't he was a very um regular person in many ways and um very 
he uh, he no, he noticed you. I mean, I mean, the, the, you that comes across in the book. You were not a wallflower to him. You were not back. You were not backdrop. You know, Martin Buber. No. Martin Buber, the philosopher, talks about Martin Buber. Yeah, he talks I about, love Martin Buber. Yeah, the I thou experience, right? And so often in, in late modern culture, everything is I it, right? And and often right. a celebrity or something, you're. An, but you were a thou to Bowie. And, and, and that that came across in the book that he he related to you in in an incredibly human way. Yeah, I I'm not you know I don't know exactly you know I don't know exactly what it was about me <laughs> that um I mean I hope that you know we you know he's attracted to my thoughts or what I was saying I don't know maybe it was just cute I don't know um but yeah there was something there as so much so that he. Um, made the effort, obviously, to give me amazing advice and thoughts um, about what to do with my life and what to do with myself. Um, he was a true humanist in many ways. Um, there's a, and when I think about it at that time, for instance, I talk about how you know we opened for Iggy Pop at the Palladium, and that was set up by Bowie. And I didn't know that until it happened. And then um, there are photographs I think I put in the book of uh, that were taken that I had taken of me by Greg Gorman, very big celebrity photographer, and that was set up by Bowie. And I didn't realize that at the time. It's kind of like you know there he 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 di- and I know he did this throughout his whole life for people, for other artists, for everybody. He would he worked behind the scenes and he made things happen for people, people that he cared about, people that he felt you know, um, that he saw something in, saw a spark in. And I, that is something that is just so unique about him. Um, what do you think I mean, was the you know, source of that for him? Do you, did you ever get a sense of why he was like that? It's interesting you say that. I probably shouldn't be saying this now, but um, I, 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 I have this idea to possibly work on a book about his childhood. Because I am fascinated about where that comes from. And um, I, he had a very difficult childhood, um, very strange. And his, I know his half-brother killed himself. I know there have been quite a few unfortunate suicides in his family um, and mental illness. Um, but I, I don't know. There was a quality in him that was very grateful. He was grateful about what he had. You know, I'm not saying he didn't have an ego. Okay, but he wasn't like a narcissist. There was not like this narcissist quality about him, as there are in many rock and roll stars. Okay, that's something that uh, impels them and gets them up there. And right, right. You have to have some ego to think that everybody should listen to you. Absolutely. I'm not saying he didn't have that, but there was some kind of innocence in him that I think comes from a very early age. Um, and maybe part of it was gratefulness, gratefulness that he survived his childhood. I, I do know about Bowie that there was one thing about him which is fascinating and which is something that I also have in my life, which is that he, when he moved on to whatever phase in his life, he shut down the previous phase. He didn't want to remember the past. The past was dead. I, he didn't want to go back to it. And so that's one reason why we don't know much about his childhood but uh, and his youth. But I do know that that was a quality about him. As he moved forward in life, the past is gone. It's over. Do you the think, door is shut. Do you think part of his connection to you, I mean, it sounds like he was a tortured soul and, and you were a bit of a tortured soul. I mean, you had a yes. tumultuous <laughs> childhood. I wonder how much 
he could sense that in you, like somebody with great creativity that also had some that also had some pain in their story. Well, um, see, he he knew me at the time I was diagnosed with MS. He knew, like, I knew him before and after. Um, yeah, you but, you write it. You wrote an essay uh, yes. about this uh, for on the partially examined life. I'll link to it in the show notes, but it's uh, it's called Mortality and the Man Who Fell to Earth, and it was after you were diagnosed with MS, and you're 18, you're you're sitting having dinner, and w- with him, he was uh, doing the Elephant Man in New York, and he just asked you halfway through dinner, like how you're feeling and, and what you're going to do, and, and now that you had this diagnosis, and it it might end a relationship to this world that had been so formative for you, and and he just. Yeah. He freed you. He said, you don't have to do this. Like you could go to college. You could, and it seemed like, I don't know if you needed permission to let go of, of one thing to embrace another, but it seemed like if you did, he, he gave you the permission to do well, it. Well, he did. He did. And I think, I mean, I think I did need permission. I was 18, 17 or 18 at that point. And, um, yeah, young and developing and evolving. And so, yes, I think getting that permission, but having this icon, this, enormous presence of rock and roll saying you don't have to be there you don't have to be here you don't have to be in rock and roll um that that it it was amazing and i think yeah giving i needed that i wasn't going to get it from my parents i wasn't going to get it from jimmy um i needed that and and he gave me a gift that is is hard to um deny that it it changed my life it gave me my life in many ways um and i'm extraordinarily grateful for it and for knowing him you know that was what it what a what a what a present what a gift that is anyway to have, have known this person who let me tell you it, it's not just a matter of rock and roll for him it's not just a matter of his poetry and painting i mean he considered himself more of a painter than a than a than a uh i mean you know, obviously, he considered him a great, you know, uh, rock and roll, you know, musician. But he, he really, I think, his soul was in um, art, you know, in visual arts, and that's where his soul, which is why he wanted to talk to my dad, who was the news, you know, art critic for Newsweek magazine. Um, at you know, just saying. But um, I, I do know that 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 there was something. That's where his soul really was. You're and a- his son now does, uh, you know, is in film, and so. It's more visual medium, but anyway, I'm sorry. I'm You're, going off. No, that's no, it's great. Your your relationship with Jimmy uh, Destry was a painful one. I mean, there was abuse. I mean, it, it was it was it was. It, I mean, it sounded like the highs were high and the lows were low. It it, it was a tough. Yeah. yeah, it was a tough relationship. And yeah, it was it was. It, and I was young, and there were a lot of drugs. Yeah, I mean, I, I, that. It, it, it. I mean, I wonder if it was that kind of pain common to the scene, like just relationships that were very painful. I mean, there's a lot of energy, a lot of action, a lot of drugs, a lot of uh, egos, oh, a lot of. I mean, it 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 doesn't seem like. I don't, wait, I, hold on, let me turn this off because I don't know why it's going off. Yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I, I mean, I mean, good healthy relationships are hard in any environment, right? Just because oh, of yeah. stress and fragility and finitude and anxiety, and, and this sounds like a kind of you know, pressure cooker that would just chew up and spit out any relationship. Yeah. And, um, absolutely. I think rock and roll is, um, a difficult environment for that anywhere. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, hold on. I'm just, people are calling me. Um, you're still a star. <laughs> no. 
I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month? Or more, it's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Andrew Stravitz, Barry Stewart, Ben Crosby, Ben DeHart, Carol Clemens, Charlotte Donlin, David Norling, David Zoll, Ellis Brazil, Jennifer Spite, Jennifer Underwood, Jim Cress, Joel Wentz, John Schneider, Jonathan Butran, Jordan Mossberger, Josh Redder, Kai Wittenpeg, Larry Rule, Liam O'Brien, Michael Butera, Peter Steigerwald, Samantha Konauer, Sari Graham, Simone Garabedian, and Stephen Rowe. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. It's interesting you ask me about this because no one has asked me about this in any of my interviews about the abusiveness of this relationship. In fact, at the time that um, just before the book was released, the senior editor at the publishing house talked to me about because of the whole Me Too movement that's going on. And and she said, you know, how are you going to, to talk about this if someone asks you about it? And I find it fascinating that no one really has asked me about it. Um, but the, and the thing that is, is I think key to it is cause it, is it was the drugs. Uh, I really think so. Um, uh, he, um, he's doing much better now and, you know, is, is a certified drug counselor and, 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 but I, I, that is, I think the key or the primary folk or the primary, um, world that happens, um, in rock and roll and happened then is that. People are just so involved in drugs and so involved in alcohol that they didn't um, they didn't think about you know they didn't realize they didn't or not realize I don't want to give excuses but um, there was no reflection you know I mean you know uh, if you think of um, Sid Vicious you know from the Clash and everything that was going on with him I mean there's a there is an element in punk and in that movement at that time of violence. You know, a violence on stage, a violence um, in 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 the lyrics, and viol- violence in the music that's that's written, and and so I'm not saying that that is acceptable, but it was there, and I think you know I'm not saying that you know okay absolutely because there's you're written violent lyrics now you can go beat up your girlfriend. I'm not saying that, but there was this energy, this uh, of of violence, drugs that was there. And I know that Jimmy, even though Blondie did not has wrote very different kind of music than the Sex Pistols or the Clash, obviously. Um, but um, Jimmy, um, you know, had a serious drug problem, which in fact um, caused him to be let go by Blondie to get fired ultimately. 
Um, and so uh, that played into a lot of the uh, abuse that I, you know, took from him, unfortunately. Um, I'm not excusing him or excusing it, but, and I don't know, like my, the editor saying, what are you going to say when someone asks you about this in the Me Too context? I, I don't know how, how, how to say that, you know, it, that is very complicated um, uh, movement that's going on right now. I think it's a very important movement and it's giving a voice that a voice where a voice has never been before. And I think it reflects a problem uh, in terms of not just um, women not being able to speak out, but rather how men uh, perceive themselves, you know, in, re in, in relation to women. I think it's a much bigger problem than Anyway, I'm going off, but well, yeah, the, yes. and this is not. I mean, the the abuse is is different than. It, I mean, it's a consensual relationship that's abusive. I mean, it's it's this is. I mean, it, it's a it's a tragic love dynamic yeah. that is not. Yeah. I mean, it, it it is. So it's 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 a it's a different form of than just than somebody kind of. Uh, attacking right i mean who doesn't know you who doesn't know you i mean which in some ways i i don't know i mean you can't quantify or pain i mean but the it's a, but it's a different it's a different unique story that you had well um just because you're in a relationship and it's a love relationship still you know no means no right right you know so um that doesn't you know just because you that doesn't give you a pass right. to physically abuse someone so um, that's a very important part of the Me Too movement as well. Um, even though, anyway, even though most of the uh, outcry has been from women who have been uh, abused or dealt with in very negative ways, who weren't in a love relationship. But be that as it may, when I when I talk about it, I think I remember the scene, obviously, which took place um, when we were out in Long Island. Um, uh, in, um, I guess Montauk or something somewhere, I think it was. Um, and after it happened, this, you know, I went into the bedroom and I sat next to him and I, I, I just put my, you know, hand on him and I, I, I just looked at him and I knew, you know, I knew the horrible thing he had just done. And, but I, you know, I think because I was so young and, you know, I had just been diagnosed with MS, I was still dealing with the medications and I didn't know how to deal with that. I didn't know. I just, all I could do was put my hand on him and look at him and go, I know, I know, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't in any way. And, um, yeah, I, I, it's, it's a, it's a difficult thing, but I also know that he's, he's a good man and he just, I'm not giving any excuses. I'm just saying that he was very, very deeply involved in drugs and, um, that I think really made it very problematic for him. But I don't know. Maybe he was reacting because I had just been diagnosed. I don't know what could have done it. I don't know. People have very unusual, strange ways of dealing with suffering in their lives. One of the things about your story is that you you have this kind of mercurial rise to like you have this mercurial rise to to you know kind of fame and, and and fortune and then a peculiar crash with your health and all the sudden like like it, it's a lot packed into a very condensed Short section of, of your of, of your life and i mean that and again it's you didn't have the the childhood that i mean nobody's prepared for deep pain and suffering and things like that but also like so much it seems was thrust on you so quickly and uh -oh. then taken from you so quickly well I mean, yes and no. <laughs> Sometimes I've said, um, I mean, luckily, I, I, in the great context 
Well, yes, it all happened very quickly in a two, three-year period. Okay, yes, a lot of major things. Connecting with Bowie, uh, playing these big stadiums. You know, yes, a lot of major things happened. Um, and uh, then getting diagnosed. But granted, uh, you know, I'm not, I, I just want to say I was in many ways very lucky um, because I was diagnosed young. And, and when you're diagnosed young, you, you have a better prognosis. Um, but again, you have to, I had to change. Something had to change. So yeah, a lot of major things happened and I had to grow up very quickly. I agree. Um, I think my parents could not handle <laughs> any of it. Um, and, and so, yeah, it, yeah I, you're right. It was a lot to, to, to confront in a very short period of time. Um, but in hindsight, because hindsight's 2020, right? <laughs> in hindsight, um, I'm very happy with the way things happened. One of the th themes um, in the book is, what do you call it? Um, the academic desire on my part versus the rock and roll. Yeah. That's one of the themes in the book. And um, my heart has always been, still is, and always will be in academia and scholarly pursuits. And so... Um, you know, as I say, in hindsight, I'm very happy about what happened. I don't know if I, let's say I hadn't gotten diagnosed. Would I have stayed in rock and roll anyway? I highly doubt it. You know, I would have gone to college. I wanted to go to college, you know? So, so after you sort of leave the scene or at least, you know, you transition, you, you go to college, you're a lawyer now, Yeah. you're a writer. Uh, yeah. I mean, and you do a podcast yeah. about philosophy and fiction. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was... So how did how did those all those threads come together? I mean, what why law? What's your interest in philosophy, and and how does that? Well, the thing I mean, I, be, I became very interested in philosophy when I was in college. Um, I was got my degree in writing, but um, but I mean, philosophy and law are not that different. I mean, well, in terms of procedural, they're different. <laughs> but and if there's one thing that is just awesome about law is the study of law. The practice of law sucks big time, okay? Um, but the the studying it is just wonderful because it's very philosophy based. Um, however, um, so I I mean that's one thing that really I just really love doing um, and studying because of my my passion for for philosophy. Um, now um, the writing has always been there had always been there, but I had to make a living, <laughs> had to get a job, you know, and I could make a living as a lawyer. And then I had to raise kids. So I was, you know, there's a lot of that going on. Writing was always there. In fact, the novel that I'm, I'm trying to finish up this year, I've been working on for probably 10 years. Um, so the writing has always been there. And my father was a writer, my mother was a writer, it's a family of writers. So, you know, it's not, not not surprising that that's where my interests are primarily but and law is writing too i mean large part of law is writing um so um you know it just it kind of makes a lot of sense you know in terms of the diagnosis i you know this is something and i've talked to people in ms communities and you know through my my doctor he she has me talking to to people as well um you know this is never <laughs> been i always say that mms is just like my blue eyes it's my life it's me and i'm still gonna live a full and exciting life i've never thought of ms as a barrier 
as something that stops me from doing anything um, at all. Now, everybody has a different experience with this condition. You know, my sister has it as well, which is rare, by the way. And um, she got it later, and so she has more problems. But people have different, you know, so I'm lucky to be able to, you know, do what I want and, and pursue what I want, despite having this condition. But again, I, I can push this even to a bigger philosophical discussion in terms of we all have something, okay? We all have issues. It can be something like, um, I don't know, you're farsighted or... You know, you, and like, for instance, okay, you have black skin. I have MS. We all have, I'm not saying that that black skin is like having a disease. Black skin is not. But my point is that we are all looked at upon if we don't meet a certain perfect, you know, image in as far as society is concerned, then we're failures or we're lost or we're, you know, we, and, and that's not the case. I, you know, I use a wheelchair. What does that mean? That doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't change me as a vital human being who has a lot to give to the world. You know, I have a friend who, I don't know, for some reason he always says, um, someone introduces me and says, so-and-so, she's written this, whatever, whatever, and she uses a wheelchair. Like, why do you say that? Would you say that that so-and-so, you know, written all this and done all this and she has blue eyes? I mean, why, what is, it doesn't matter, you know, the, the, the beauty and the vitality in a human being has nothing to do with that, you know, it has everything to do with what I think and what I say, not how I look. Yeah, but, I mean, I think also, I mean, we're all just particular and finite, right? And we, we're, we're all, I mean, like, we all have our own limitations, right? And part of yes. it is, this is, this is how we negotiate life. Like, yes. we, we, we accept them or don't, you know? Right. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And it don't and you don't I, I always try to tell people don't let it stop you. Don't let this is what I think I hope I said at the end of got the message across at the end of my book, which is that, you know, I'm still lucky, you know. I am. I mean, I again this is a a lesson, a struggle to change the way society, even the history of thought has to be dealt with, and that is you know, perceiving someone with a cane or is perceiving someone with, I don't know, uh, you know, like I say, a wheelchair or anything like that as less than someone who doesn't. It just, to me, is, is horrific. It's like the idea of, I mean, I don't want to get sound really like stupid or silly, but I don't mean to, but it's the same idea to me as perceiving someone who has black skin as being any less of a valuable human being than someone who has white skin. I can get really intense about this discussion about this because I get very angry about it because, you know, I mean, angry in that, you know, I get it's sort of sad, you know, recognizing the limitations in society and the limitations uh, at the way um, we perceive each other, you know, again, it, and that that can be turned on its head to the way we perceive, oh, someone who is so incredibly beautiful, I don't know, like Beyonce or something, and that they are that much greater and have that much more to offer, you know, it, it's, it's something that I've always uh, disliked in life. Even back in the time when I was in rock and roll, you know, which hence why I, one of the reasons I like being in the back of the band, 
you know, <laughs> I didn't want to be in the front. I had a friend who wrote a review recently of a book that was written by a theologian from Australia who was a quadriplegic, and he's a theological ethicist who's done a lot of work on virtue theory at Aristotle. And he was saying that he lived, he's learned virtues through this experience because he starts every day independence on other people, and that he's realized so much of life is is relational, and, and so often we resist that that we resist interdependence and you know we because it's vulnerable yeah. and then he says you know that, that he has this advantage in the sense of he's forced to vulnerability and dependence which many of us when we experience it uh on the other side we're grateful but it takes so much to get there you know like because it because it can be yeah i mean it's, it's just interesting that i mean finitude always has its invitations right, right. and and we can refuse them or not right do, do you think is rock and roll dead i mean it, it, it just you watched it you watch The Voice or anything like that, or American, like nobody, nobody, very few people pitch themselves as rock and roll stars, right? It's it's country, it's hip hop, it's R and B, it's sort of like it other pops up, but like rock. I mean, you know, Black Keys, things from other people, but there, there's not. That's not where all the energy is in music anymore. It's a strange phenomenon. It is a strange phenomenon. I've got two daughters who are in their twenties, <laughs> um, which does not um, bode well for my age, <laughs> but. Yes, we, you know, watching them, you know, enjoy the music that they enjoy. And I'm like, what is this? <laughs> you know, I, I, it's hard for me to say that it is rock and roll. Is rock and roll dead? <sighs> I don't want to say it is. Uh, I really don't. Um, um, but yeah, it has morphed. It has changed in such a way that it's it's not what you and I, you know, recognize as rock and roll. Um, and I wonder if somebody came out now like you know i mean i know john lydon still plays a lot uh johnny rotten um you know and we obviously got you know metallica and all of the metal bands they're out there and that's you know hardcore rock and roll um i you know i don't know i i i don't want to say that it's dead but, but even those bands, even if you're thinking those, they didn't come up. They came up in another time and are still enduring. They sell fans, but you don't. I mean, they're they're not. It's not what people are doing now. You know, I mean, they're not. Not many people are looking at Metallica and saying we're going to be the next Metallica. No, 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 not. And they're not saying, uh, looking at the Rolling Stones and saying we're going to be the next Rolling Stones. And they're not looking at you know Led Zeppelin and saying we're going to be the next Led Zeppelin. No, I, I don't. I'm not sure why that is. I maybe it's a, everything, everything in in the world, everything in the universe, everything in life evolves and changes and. That's just a part of existence. Heraclitus, right? You never step in the same river twice. Never step in the same river twice. That's right. Absolutely. Well, you've stepped in a lot of interesting rivers in your life, uh, Laura. And <laughs> thank thanks you. for writing this great book, The Girl in the Back. And thanks for spending a little bit of time talking with me about it. Oh, I really enjoyed it. Really enjoyed it. Thank you Pleasure so much. Was, pleasure was all mine. Terrific. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you've found it here. 
Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks to Laura for coming on the podcast. Do check out her book, The Girl in the Back. You won't regret it, I promise you. And thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well. <laughs>